Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 11. I bought a new uh, cell phone about a week ago, in part because mine is uh, a couple of years old, and at some point they just uh, don't work that well, and in part because there's a new law going into effect in June which says if you're in the car, you cannot use your cell phone without a, hand, a hands-free device. And uh, so I got, my old phone was not capable of doing that, so I got a new phone, and I got one of them little things you stick in your ear, and don't worry, I will not be wearing that as a common occurrence, uh, just when I'm in the car once in a while. In fact, uh, today I'm going to be driving down to Salem, Oregon for a conference, and a couple of people had made inquiries about, uh, a couple of ministry people had made inquiries about counseling questions that are going to take some time to answer. I said, look, I'm going to be driving to Salem I'll get you on the phone and we'll just talk while I'm driving to Salem. I'm kind of looking forward to trying that out and I hope that it works well. But in order for the, phone, the thing to work, you've you got to take the little hands-free thing and the phone and turn them both on and set them next to each other and wait while they, while they learn to talk to each other. And actually the phone is the intelligent part of that component. The, they're wireless, you see, and so the little, little headset is putting out a signal and the phone's going, oh, where are you, where are you? And, Pretty soon it locks on, and then you press the buttons, and now you're good to go. And anytime you turn that on, they know how to talk to each other because they're on the same frequency. What we're going to learn in John chapter 11 today is how to get on the same frequency with God. See, as Christians, if we're not thinking like God thinks, we will strive and struggle to connect with Him. And some people have even have even come to a great time of shipwreck in their life because they don't understand what God is doing. And yet the marvelous thing in John chapter 11 is God tells us in absolutely plain language what he is doing in the world. Please follow as I read. I'm going to read a long portion because God saw fit to make this a big story. And so follow along, please. John chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then, Yeah, you're catching on, aren't you? Then after that, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Judea would have been the, the county, if you will, around Jerusalem. It's, it's, he's talking about going from one area to another. Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is 
dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also that we may die with him. He's, all he's thinking about is Jesus going to Judea and getting stoned by the Jews. That's all he's thinking about. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, that's Lazarus, for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> kind of a theme going there. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Are you sure you know what you're doing, Jesus? <laughs> Isn't this the craziest thing? She says, I know that you are the Son of God, but Jesus says to do something, and she just questions it. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with the grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. 
But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we leave him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. What an incredible story. What an incredible set of events. And and the the most incredible thing, I think, is, is that God tells us exactly what he is doing in the world. God's goal in the world is bringing glory to himself. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not going to result in death. In other words, death wasn't the goal or the purpose. He knew because he was God, he already knew Lazarus was dead. Later in the chapter, he says that. So he's not saying that Lazarus is not going to die, but he's saying the purpose is something different. This sickness is for the purpose of the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And we look down at verse 40, when Jesus is talking to Martha, and he says, Did I not say to you that if you would believe... You would see the glory of God. Jesus didn't say, Martha, if you really believe, I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't say that because that was not what he was doing. He was trying to get glory to himself. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the sum total of his attributes. And the word attribute, probably our most uh, common word for that today would be characteristic, a description of God a a facet of who he is. And some of those attributes, I'm just going to list a few of them here. One of them is this, God is powerful. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. God says that if you study this world, you should come up with the fact that there is a God and that he is, must really be something in order to create this. God is powerful. God is wise. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes or the laws of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God is wise. He knows about this life. He knows about this world. He's wise. He's holy or righteous. That's one that we're probably most familiar with because we we obviously think of God as being completely righteous. God is love, God is just, God is gracious. We could go on at length about those those attributes of God, but all of those together are who God is. It is his glory, who he is is his glory, and according to these verses, 
God does things in the world to make his glory known. How does he make his glory known? Jesus said, I am going to do something that is going to give you a peek into who I am. I'm going to do something that only God can do. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, and he used the word sleep, and part of the reason that Jesus used the word sleep is because for the believer, and, and Lazarus was an Old Testament believer. He was not a Christian because Christ hadn't died yet, but he was an Old Testament believer. And in that sense, their bodies only sleep because what is ahead for the believer? Resurrection. And so death is not a final and complete thing. It is a temporary thing physically. And of course, spiritually, the person never stops existence. And so he uses the word sleep, and it's used elsewhere in the New Testament as well. But they misunderstood. So in verse 14, he says, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus says there's a purpose going on here, and it's beyond the raising of Lazarus. It's so that you will believe. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, to to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. God is making his glory known through through the events of this world that bring us to faith. Look at verse 37. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? And then verse 40. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? God makes his glory known through his interactions with us. He makes his glory known through his interactions with us. God has chosen in our age to limit himself, if you will, to making his glory known in that way. In the Old Testament, one of the ways God made his glory known was by making the cloud of fire or the cloud, uh, the, the pillar of fire or the pillar of a cloud above the tabernacle of the Old Testament uh, the, the, the people of Israel, and he says, this is, this is an evidence of my glory, and when it moves, you follow it. God's not doing that kind of thing today. God is working through us to make his glory known. He was working through Lazarus to make his glory known. Lazarus' death and revival, it's not a resurrection because his body was not perfected at that point because he died again. But Lazarus' death and revival was all about the glory of God. It was not about Lazarus. And that brings us to our next point here. God's means to reach his goal is our life. And the first thing that we understand about it from this passage that is so instructive to us is this. The events of our lives are planned. Look at verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, they sent a courier, a messenger, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
Now, many of the commentators looking at this passage says they, they didn't really even ask him for anything. I, I disagree with that. I think the very act of sending someone out and saying, look, this fellow that is your friend, and what's interesting about the way this is written here is clearly Lazarus and Mary and Martha shared a, a more close relationship with Jesus than the average disciple. Because the word used for friend here, or, or the, the word used for love is not the word agape, which is the standard word for love that means a self-sacrificing love. It's the word for that we get Philadelphia or brotherly love from. They shared some kind of a, some kind of a, a, a deeper human kind of friendship that was not common with all of the disciples. And they said, Lord, your friend, your buddy is sick. Clearly, clearly there's a, there's an, uh, uh, a request intimated in there. And when Jesus heard that, verse 4, he said, there is a purpose in this sickness. There is a plan. It is for the glory of God. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Folks, this whole thing was planned out. The events of our life are planned That's one of the challenges that people find with God. As they look up to heaven and say, why is this happening to me? And and the answer is right here. The answer is because God wants to get glory from your life. The events of our lives are not accidents. They aren't random. They aren't lucky or unlucky. They may be unwelcome or hard they may be stress inducing but they come to us through the purposeful hand of God but the purposefulness of our lives goes beyond this oft repeated phrase then I hear people all over the world saying this people who are not Christians and Christians alike well everything happens for a reason and they say it because they don't know why it happened, and they don't know the reason, but they can't bear the thought that these things randomly happen, especially to good people like them. So they say, everything happens for a reason. Well, I would say, amen, and the reason is the glory of God. Now, can I explain every occurrence of your life in a way that will satisfy you as to how God is going to get glory? No, I cannot. I made one of the most foolish mistakes of, of, of my ministry career when I, I was thrust into a room where a, where a child had died uh, and, and the mother was extremely wrought with grief and so much so that she was, as people would say, catatonic. And they, they said, we need her to get out of the room. We can handcuff her and drag her out, but we'd rather if it happened some other way. And I got down there next to her, and, and she, she asked the question that everybody asked, which is, why did this happen? And I launched into a theological treatise. And what I learned was, it doesn't matter how much I know the truth at that moment, that is not the moment to explain it, because I didn't know if she was a believer or not. And, and it didn't work. But friends, if you're a Christian, you need to understand something. 
no matter what happens in your life, God knows, God is at work actively trying to get glory through you and from you. Don't don't ever let go of that truth. Jesus knew that Lazarus was dead. Jesus knew he would be stinky after four days. Jesus knew the mourners would be there. Jesus could have spoken the word. When that runner came, Jesus could have said, go your way, he's healed. He did that a couple of other times, didn't he? One time in particular when a Roman army officer came and and he said, my son is sick, will you come heal him? And Jesus said, sure. And he said, you don't even need to go. You just speak the word. He said, I'm a man under authority. I tell him to go and come. You can do the same thing. You just speak the word. And Jesus said, wow, I've never seen faith like that. Jesus didn't have to even go to, to Bethany to heal Lazarus. But everything about this event was planned. It was orchestrated. God knew what was going on. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew what the results were going to be. Whoa, sorry about that. Woke you up, didn't it? Never done that before. I hope I never do it again. Almost as good as whistling. (laughs) Folks, take a moment and think about the most unwelcome thing that happened in your life this week. The hardest thing. Maybe there's something that's still hanging over that you've got to do. And you're thinking, man, that's hard. Why did that have to happen? Just stop and say, you know what? Jesus wants to get glory from my life. The events of our lives are planned, and the obvious thing that goes with that is this. The events of our lives are not always pleasing. Do you suppose Lazarus enjoyed dying? You know, I've never had a a near-death experience, quote-unquote. I've not been that sick. A couple of times I, 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 I wished to go to heaven because I had been kind of sick, but I really wasn't that sick. Some of you have been that sick. And I, I can't imagine what it's like, you know, I've been around some folks that have died and, and, and the, you know, there's certainly a sensing of the transition, and, but it's got to be a hard thing. And, and Lazarus had to go through that in order for this to happen. Nobody ever really thinks much about the pain of Lazarus. They think about the joy of Lazarus. But there was some pain there for Lazarus. He had to die, and then he had to die again later on. He had to die twice. There was the pain of Mary and Martha. They had to to watch their brother die. This was a pain-filled event. Lazarus had to suffer the pain of coming back from paradise. How bad is that? You know, I mean, if it had been me, I'd come out of them grave clothes going, Lord, please, I'm much happier over there. 
There's pain. The events of our lives are not always pleasing. Now, we know that, but we've got to couple that together with God being at work. Our tendency is to look at an unwelcome event and and say it's not of God or it's this or it's that. And, And certainly we can make mistakes. I almost made one this morning on the slippery road. And I would have not blamed God for that. I would have said, you know, I was driving a little too fast where I should have been thinking it might be icy. But still, even so, even if it's my mistake, God knew it was going to happen. And God knew about the aftermath and the consequence. I shared with my small group this week that part of the saga of buying the cell phone involves significant disappointment in what was promised to me and going back and trying to make it right and trying to figure things out. And I did not, I did not look up to heaven and say, this is for the glory of God. <laughs> because if I had, I would have acted a little differently. Our natural inclination is always toward our good health and well-being. God's inclination is to demonstrate his unimaginably great and powerful person. And he knows that sometimes the only way he can get glory is through hardship. I met, I, I met a fellow who eventually became a member of our church, but I met him when his baby died in Tukwila. He was living with a woman. They had had a child. The child died of sudden infant death syndrome. And I'm there, and pretty soon I figure out that his in-laws, we'll call them his mother and father-in-law, are, are acquaintances of mine from another church. And in the aftermath of, of that horrible, gut-wrenching event, his father-in-law came to him and said, Look, he named the baby. He said, He's with the Lord. And if you ever want to see him again, you need to accept Christ as your Savior. Wow! I wish I had the courage to talk that way. Because you know what happened? He accepted Christ. And he got baptized, became a disciple, became a, a significant member of our church. And a year after the day when his baby died, he was at some, his friends who their child had died, he was at their funeral consoling them. Oh, I, I don't wish the death of a child on anybody. But did God get glory there? Oh, yes, he did. And he's still getting glory because that man is still living for the Lord. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. According to my earnest expectation and hope, he's in jail when he's writing this. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified or seen clearly in my body, whether by life or by death. Are you that committed to the glory of God? The words... We want all things to be done to the glory of God. Roll off our tongue so easily. Oh, we want God to be honored. Oh, we want to to glorify God. And it's good that we say the words. But what happens when he decides that his glory is best served by significant hardship? That's when we have to stop and say, oh, God, help me. 
I'm struggling here. And we've got to remember God is in the business of getting glory, of getting honor, of showing who he is. Now think about this. Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus so much that he set them up for one of the world's all-time great miracles. But you know what is true if you're going to get a miracle? That means you got some real problem. If you want a miracle, it's going to come through difficulty. He loved them so much that they are immortalized in a whole chapter of Scripture saying, look what happened here. The events of our lives are planned. They're not always pleasing. But the events of our lives are always, always perfected. What I mean by that is not perfect according to our definition of perfect. The word perfected or perfect in the scripture means brought to its intended purpose, brought to a conclusion. If I am cooking a meal, I have all the ingredients and we we gather the ingredients and we go through a process and the perfection is when it all comes together into some cooked piece of food. The events of our lives are always perfected. That's what this verse means. And all things, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This verse is what happened with Lazarus. God worked in Lazarus' life and in in that family for good. But it doesn't mean God fixes or changes every hardship. It means that out of every hardship, God brings good things. God is at work in us and around us and through us. No matter how unwelcome an event, God is at work taking the events of life and weaving together impacts that honor himself. In this particular event, God used the death of Lazarus to give Mary and Martha one of the most spectacular answers to prayer ever. They went and said, Lord... (laughs) This guy that you love is sick. And he came back and went, boom! Can you imagine the talk at the dinner table? Oh, you're Lazarus? Oh, dude. Dude, what was that like? And he's the only guy ever who wrote the near-death experience book. And it was true. <laughs> he said, well, you know, I, I didn't see a great light, but boy, I sure did. I saw Moses, you know, so on, so on. Spectacular answers to prayer come, during, come after spectacular problems. God used the death of Lazarus to show the crowd of friends and relatives who came to mourn who Jesus was. Again, Jesus knew that if he waited for four days, that a whole bunch of people would come together because in that time, things like weddings and funerals were not half-hour or one-hour events followed by ham buns and potato salad it was a multiple days long event and of course if you really love your loved one you're not just going to grieve for an hour or two and i'm and i'm you know i'm being facetious there we obviously grieve longer but they'd have this big public thing and people you know all of their friends and relatives plus many people would hire professional mourners 
Yeah, you know, you got to do it up. It's kind of like the worship team for a funeral. And Jesus knew that if he waited for four days, they'd all, there'd be a big crowd of people there. If Jesus had done this miracle with just Lazarus and Mary and Martha, do you think other folks would have believed that Lazarus had actually died? No, and he waited until Lazarus stank. He waited until Lazarus needed to be reconstructed. God used the death of Lazarus to burn into the minds of the apostles to be exactly who he was. Remember that verse? He said, I'm glad for your sake, to the, to the disciples who became the apostles, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there when this happened. Because when these guys saw the power of Christ and they, were, they knew what was going on, wow, that strengthened them. God used the death of Lazarus to show us the heart of Christ. I... I'm not sure that Jesus wept just because he was sad, because he knew Lazarus was going to come out of the grave, and so it wasn't the, the, the tears of separation. I think if we look at those verses that say he groaned in his spirit, there's a couple of interesting words there, and one of them means, the literal meaning is it was applied to a horse when a horse snorts, when he's like, like that, and he's snorting. It's that word. That's a strange word. But what it, it seems to show us into the heart of Christ, and it's as though Christ is looking at death, and he's, and he's thinking, man, I hate this. I hate that these folks have to go through this. And it made him sad that we even have to experience death, and especially that his good friend had to experience it. And <laughs> I hope it's not flippant for me to say, can you imagine the joy of Jesus going, come forth, Lazarus! Wow, I, I, I can't help but think in his mind, he's thinking, you know, someday I get to say that to all the Christians. Wow, we see the heart of Christ. God used the death of Lazarus to set in motion the crucifixion of Christ. The end of that passage that we may look at some more next week basically goes like this. You need to read it kind of carefully, but what happens is, the Pharisees, the Jews, the rulers of Israel get so jealous of Jesus, they say, look, if we let him go, everyone will believe. And what they thought would happen was some kind of an uprising against the, the Romans. And they, they, they said, if that happens, the Romans will come in here and squash us all flat. And especially us who are in leadership will lose our leadership role. And so the high priest says, we need to kill him to save the country. But he puts it this way. We need to kill one man to save all of the rest of the people. And that's when the scripture says he didn't know it, but he was actually prophesying about what Christ was going to do. He was going to die to save all of the people. God used this miracle and these events and the way everybody was there and their reaction to it to set in motion the events of the cross. One of the greatest stories of triumphant faith in the face of tragic difficulty is the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Some of you have perhaps read her book, some of you have not. Um, this, I believe, is the latest one, and it's two or three years old now. 
It's called The God I Love, and I would highly recommend it if you... This one talks about all of the events of her life up until just two or three years ago and really has the perspective of spiritual maturity. It's just really a blessing to read it. Not that the other books didn't have a good perspective, but this one is just such an encouragement for her faith. And here's one of the chapters and one of the things she went through. If you don't know the story, she was a very physically active, athletic kind of teenage girl who dove in a lake and broke her neck with a high fracture, maybe C4 or something like that, and became instantly a quadriplegic at about 17 years old. And now, now currently she would be like 51, 2, 3, somewhere in that neighborhood. And here is an episode from her life. The test came back, Johnny, the specialist said over the phone. I gulped, waiting for the news. It's negative, he sighed. My heart sank. Listen, he said, it has nothing to do with your spinal cord injury. You're just one of those type A women who can't conceive. The words hit me like shrapnel. Ever since Ken and I married seven years earlier, we had been trying to start a family. Now on the verge of my 40th birthday in October of 89, we'd gotten the final news. I called Ken on his lunch break at school. I'm not pregnant, I said numbly. I'd heard all about the sorrow of women who were barren. Now the heartache of it hit home. I pictured the stuffed animals, the children's books, the games I had tucked away on the top shelves of our bedroom closet. I thought of the sketch I'd drawn for turning my art studio into a little nursery, of how we would bolt a baby's car seat to a lap board on my wheelchair. I thought of the girlfriends I had lined up to help out and the little pair of faded blue overalls folded in the bottom of my dresser. People get married in order to have a family. How, and Ken, how will Ken and I handle this? I let large, silent tears roll down. Sorrow hung heavy that night like a humid mist as Ken and I lay in bed. We talked, we small talked, but mostly we let the silence do the speaking. Although I couldn't feel it, I knew he was holding my hand, and I was comforted by the steady rhythm of his breathing. So, my husband asked softly, where do we go from here? For several years, I had sensed this moment creeping up and so on. Now, let me skip toward part of the end of that story in her life. Uh, God, you are amazing. I smiled to myself as I watched Hannah and Abby abandon their play to the wheel at the gazebo. Your grace and your power to sustain these children humbles me. It happened again during a trip I had to take back east for a medical appointment. Judy and another friend, Francie, took me to downtown Baltimore for a checkup at the University of Maryland. After the appointment, I wheeled down a few familiar hallways. She'd spent a lot of time there as a young person. The walls echoed with the same sounds, the padding of nurses' shoes, voices on the intercom, the creaking of juice carts rolling around. I was hoping to visit my old room, but reconstruction and new coats of paint had changed everything. More than 30 years had passed. More than 30 years in that wheelchair as a paraplegic, or quadriplegic. More than 30 years had passed, and the ICU where I'd spent so many weeks was long gone. I know a place that I bet still looks the same, I piped up. We loaded into the van, drove a mile to the other side of downtown, and parked in front of Johns Hopkins Hospital. Follow me, I told my friends, as we headed down the labyrinth of hallways toward the oldest part of the hospital. Where's the old lobby? 
They brought me here to pull out my fingernails. It had something to do with being paralyzed and having problems. I told my friends I was so depressed. I was feeling so lost back then. I explained how I used to imagine myself sitting at the pool of Bethesda waiting to get healed, waiting for Jesus to show up. I didn't see any improvement, and I would beg the Lord to come and help me to show himself in a real way. But Jesus seemed to be passing me by. That is until they brought me here, I said, quietly gazing at the huge statue of Christ in the lobby. They placed me right here at his feet. I wheeled over to the base of the statue and I read the familiar words, Come unto me and I will give you rest. The arms of Christ were still outstretched, still beckoning and welcoming. And for a while, as nurses and visitors rushed past me, I lost myself in the memory of what it was like to be a teenager so young and frightened, what it was like to be fighting off bitterness, thinking God had forgotten me, that surely my plight was more tragic than anyone else's. More than 30 years ago, she wrote this in the guest book as she visited. A frightened 17-year-old girl was paralyzed in a diving accident. During her rehab, she was brought to this hospital for minor surgery. Her stretcher placed at the base of this statue. It was an answer to prayer, a prayer that God would show me that he hadn't forgotten, that he still cared. I'm happy to say years later, he still does care. An hour later, as we sat in the hospital cafeteria, a woman approached me and said, Are you Johnny? I nodded. My name is Glenna. She introduced myself. What are you doing here? We were at another hospital today, but I wanted to show my friends the statue of Christ. The woman said, Oh, I can't believe it's you. She enthused. Your books have helped me so much. I'm here all the way from Ohio with my daughter, Angela. She has spina bifida. We're waiting for her to go through another operation. She's been here many times for surgery. In a flash, for just a brief second, I saw my own mother in this woman. I thought of mom trekking daily to the hospital to see me, and I saw the same desperation, the same holding on to hope like the thin string of a kite. Would you have time? Do you think you could please come up to the children's unit and see my daughter? I didn't blink an eye. As soon as we finished lunch, we took the elevator. I wheeled down a colorful hallway and made her right hand turn into her room. She had soft brown hair and a tender smile, and she looked groggy with tubes running in and out of her body. When I said, hi, my name is Johnny, she said, her eyes brightened. I know who you are, she said. I listen to you on the radio all the time. I spotted a junior-sized wheelchair in the corner. It was black and pink and resembled a small racing chair with a low-slung black. I remarked on how snazzy it looked. Yeah, she agreed. I gave my last wheelchair to Wheels for the World. I wanted some other kid to have it, some kid in Africa or somewhere. This is Johnny's reflection. There you go again, Lord, blessing me with the courage of a child. God was using Angela just as he did Nicole and Rachel, Hannah and Joey, and that little blonde Hungarian girl to fill my barrenness. Now I realized there was hardly an emptiness to speak of. I was as proud of Angela as a mother would be, a spiritual mother. It was all I could do not to burst out for joy over this resolve of a girl with spina bifida, holding on to grace, hanging on to hope in Christ, all the while thinking of how she might help some other child. That's living for the glory of God. If you read her book, she'll make references over and over to being tired of it, to struggling. She's not one of those people who just, uh, 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 
everything's fine. I'm a quadriplegic. Not at all. And yet, over and over throughout these 30 plus years now, she's, she's seen the God she loves at work. And so she continues to love him and serve him and say, God, aren't you great? We've got to get our minds and hearts tuned in because God's glory is not seen by everyone. In this example here, think of all the people who saw this miracle. And if we look at verse 40, Jesus says in particular, To Mary, to Martha, did I not say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus didn't say, if you believe, I will be able to do a miracle. He didn't say, I'm going to do a miracle based on your faith. He said, not if you believe, I will do whatever you say. Not if you believe I will do what will make your life fun and enjoyable, but ultimately, if you believe in me and my ways, you will see the hand of God in your life. And that's what Johnny Erickson Tata has seen. I mean, if you don't know her story, she's created a worldwide ministry helping people with disabilities and witnessing for the Lord. But if she had sat in her bitterness and said, oh, why did God let this happen to me? We wouldn't know who she is even. All who were there at this event with Lazarus, believers or not, they all saw the miracle, but Jesus promised Martha a sight of glory. The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would perceive its real significance. Maybe God's been doing miracles in your life and you just haven't seen them. Because you're not tuned in. God is at work in your life. But the truth is you are either a believer who sees the greatness of God or like some of these folks, a non-convinced skeptic of Christ or a self-righteous hater of Christ or a believer who is struggling with God's will in their life. What was your life? What would the story of your life sound like if you were Lazarus? If God wrote the story of how he's worked with you, would the result be people coming to faith in Christ and, and, and the faith and courage and the disciples that are there? What would you be saying as you came out of the tomb? Friends, it's our privilege to be used by God. But the only way it's going to happen is if we get on that wavelength of how and what he's doing in the world. Heavenly Father, help us. Oh, we struggle because we want joy and we want happiness and we want uh, peace and we want it completely and perfectly without any difficulty. Oh, Lord. Help us to see your glory. Help us to see it today and tomorrow, and every day. I pray in Christ's name, amen.